Um, tonight, you're blessed to have Cameron uh, McFarlane, Mary's man, uh, come and present the word this evening and uh, make him feel welcome as he Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for the intro, Braden. I appreciate it. Uh, if you would, please turn with me to Mark chapter number six this evening. Uh, this is where we're going to launch tonight. Um, always a blessing to be able to preach uh, and to preach to big church and not just to the teens. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. Um, so we're going to start in the book of Mark, chapter number six. Uh, just one verse tonight, verse number four. And the Bible says, But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for tonight. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to come and to be a vessel used for you and by you. Lord, I pray that you would let me do the very best that I can to convey the message that you've laid on my heart. Lord, I pray that uh, throughout tonight that we would, we would leave tonight changed and that we would accept what you have for us tonight. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. This is always the weird part for me is when everybody else sits down because I feel like, you know, I should go sit down now, but not tonight. Uh, especially after one verse. I know that's nice. We, you know, one quick verse and sit down. It's great. Um, yeah, so for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Cameron McFarland. Uh, I work with the teens here at Lighthouse. I'm the full-time uh, teen director. So that includes teaching multiple Bible studies in the schools, in the public schools throughout the week. That includes youth groups on Wednesdays, that's where I'm usually at uh, in the evenings, uh, 242 small groups, one-on-ones, and some uh, ministry training that we do with some of our young guys, just teaching them how to put together messages and then how to, how to preach and teach those. Uh, so tonight, as you saw on the board with my message, tonight the focus of my message is on family. Uh, I've entitled my message, Four Keys to Impacting Your Family for Christ. So I didn't grow up in a Christian family. I didn't grow up in a church. Uh, I was actually brought to this church uh, by one of my best friends many years ago. Um, and with that, it's always crazy. Like, I'm, I'm actually preaching tonight. Like, that blows my mind because this is the only church I've ever been in, and this is the one that I've grown up in. And so it's very surreal to, to get the opportunity to, to fill the pulpit. Uh, so with that, like I said, I didn't grow up in a Christian family, didn't grow up in a church at all. Uh, and so for many years, I was the only Christian in my home. Uh, and there were times where that was, it was good, but there was times where that was tough. Uh, and I know that for many of you tonight, and for myself and for many of you tonight, um, we still have people in our families that aren't believers. Uh, tonight, I have a, a lot of my immediate family are believers in Christ, but some of them are not. Um, and I know some of you tonight are thinking, oh, well, my whole family is saved. I'm not going to get anything out of this. You still will, uh, and you should be appreciative of that. Uh, not a lot of families in here have that. If you have a lost family member in your family, would you, if you don't mind raising, yeah. So look all across the room. You're very blessed if that is the case for your family. So I hope that you understand that tonight. And so I want to kind of preface tonight's message by just saying it's not a magical roadmap. It's not foolproof. It's not a 100% effective, uh, but it does have many truths from God's word. And I think that that, I think that they can help you impact your family for Christ. And I think that sometimes the enemy tricks us into thinking that our families are unfixable or like the Lord can't use them or he can't use us to impact our families or we're just lost, we're stuck, we don't know what to do. But understand, just looking at Scripture and looking at the Bible, there's some pretty messed up families throughout Scripture. Uh, just, just some that I, that I just want to briefly just even mention is like Genesis 4. You have Cain and Abel. That's the first family. And we know what happens with that story. We have Genesis 19, where Lot's, Lot's daughters and Lot, and I'm just going to leave that one there. Uh, we have Genesis 27, when Jacob steals Esau's blessing. And then we have Genesis 37, where Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. The Bible is full of messed up families, but God still uses those stories to teach us about the Bible. And he can use you to teach your family about the Bible, too. So let's jump in, and we're going we're gonna to start here in Mark chapter 6. I'm going to kind of go all over the place, as is usual by the preaching here at Lighthouse. So, um, Mark chapter 6, verse 1 says, And he went out from thence and came into his own country, and his disciples follow him. He's talking about Jesus here. And his own country was, was not in Bethlehem where he was born, as we know from Scripture, but it was rather in Nazareth where he grew up. We know from Scripture that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and then 
him and his parents flee to Egypt to avoid King Herod, and then after King Herod dies, they come back into Israel, but not to Bethlehem, but to Nazareth. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him? And even such mighty works are wrought by his hands. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, and of Judah and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. The, pipe, the people here were confused. They were like, where did this guy get all this wisdom? He left as a carpenter and he comes back as this wise teacher and preacher and rabbi. Like, how did this even happen? So they're a little confused. They're a little starstruck here. Um, and then they go on and they're like, isn't this Mary's son? Which I can really relate to. And as Braden so kindly helped me, I get called Mary's fiance more than I do Cameron. So, but, <laughs> so I understand that. But, and that's okay. There's, there's much worse people to be affiliated to. So... Uh, <laughs> So I get introduced to that a lot, both here at the church and elsewhere in the community, so I just wanted to throw that in there. But, and in this verse, we learn that Jesus had multiple brothers and multiple sisters, as, as that verse teaches us and shows us. Verse 4 says, But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor but in his own country, and among his own kin and in his own house. How many of you feel this way? Quite a few of us, right? And we can relate because that's what it feels like for some of us on a day-to-day basis in our own houses. And this is our launch text tonight because we can look at this and we can relate to it, but also understand there's kind of a twofold kind of message here that Jesus is sharing in this. It's that first he is referring to the people in Nazareth in his own country, and he's also referring to his own family. As we're going to look at in just a second, his family does literally reject him and they don't believe in him. But some Bible scholars believe that there's actually a deeper kind of figurative meaning to this and it's pointing at that his own country actually could refer to the nation of Israel and his own house could refer to the Jewish people. Some look at this as him kind of alluding to the coming mission and the coming charge of, the, of reaching the Gentile people, as we see you know, later in Acts. Verse 5 and 6 say, And he could do there no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went around about the village's teachings. And this isn't because he lost power or because he wasn't God anymore, but he could not perform very many miracles here in Nazareth because of the people's unbelief. If you look at the miracles of Jesus, especially from the Matthew account, which we've, you know, getting a little bit of on Sunday, you can see that people were healed and miracles were performed because of the faith that they had. One theologian put it like this, we never read that Jesus marveled at art or architecture or even the wonders of creation. He never marveled at human ingenuity or invention, at the piety of the Jewish people or the military dominance of the Roman Empire, but he did marvel at faith when it was present in an unexpected place and when it was absent where it should have been. The only other time that we see Jesus marvel at someone's faith is the faith of the centurion in in Matthew chapter number 8. So those are the only two times he marvels. One of them where he was expecting faith to be and it wasn't, and one where he was not expecting faith to be and it was. So what happens with his family? What, what happens with Jesus' family? So the Bible does not speak of, all of if all of his brothers or sisters got saved. But it does say in John uh, chapter 7, verse number 5, for neither did his brethren believe in him. So we know that at one point they did not believe in him, and then later on we see in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, that a Jesus appeared to his brother James after his resurrection. It was this same James that would later go on to pastor the church at Jerusalem and write the book of James. And we know from those works that he obviously did come to faith. The Bible says in Acts 1.14 that uh, this is like after Jesus ascends into heaven. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. So we could assume from that passage that his brothers do come to Christ, although scripture never mentions anything else about his sisters. And to many of us, we read this and we're like, how could you not believe that your brother was the son of God? And it's like, would you? Right? Like, it's not really that crazy when we put it into those kinds of terms, right? (laughs) And we think that, you know, that must have been rough, and it must have been a shock to Jesus, but it really wasn't. Matthew 10.35 says, For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Understand that Jesus didn't come to divide families. That wasn't his goal. That wasn't his purpose. He never meant to do that. 
But his goal was to come and to preach the gospel from the Bible. And he knew that because of that, families would be divided. I think many of us have experienced this. Our families are, have, can be or are divided, and we have strife because of the gospel. And Jesus knew that that would be the result of this. That's why he said that, for I've come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. So this brings me to my first point tonight, which is prayer. This is the first key to impacting your family is prayer. The number one thing that we can do for our families if we are believers in Christ is pray for them. We cannot say that Christ is at the center of our lives if prayer is not. And I know that we hear this very often, that prayer is the best thing that we can do, and we should pray, and we should pray, and we should pray, and this should be our focus. But why is prayer important? That's what I want to get into a little bit tonight, is why is prayer important? And it's important for several, several reasons, according to the scriptures. First, it's important because it's God's heart that people would get saved. For Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. As some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Ezekiel 33, verse 11 says that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It is God's heart that people would get saved. There's a lot of people who don't know God out there who say, oh, you serve an evil God. They don't know him. Because if they did, they would know these verses, and they would know that that's not his heart. It's important to pray for the lost because of Christ's death on the cross. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man is to come and to seek that which was lost. That was his purpose there, to seek and save that which was lost. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, bring, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. If we're not actively trying to be, bring people to Christ and people aren't coming to Christ, then Christ died in vain. He came for us. So when we, or we, people we know, reject him, that's making a mockery of what he did for us on the cross. 1 Peter 3, 18, if you leave that verse up there, it says his death was that he might bring us to God. That was his purpose, that was his goal, and that is why he came to earth. Without his death, there would be no way to God. There would be, there would, it would be perfection, which we are short of, and there would be no salvation for sinners like us. We would be hopeless without God. It's important to pray for the lost because we're called to. 1 Timothy 2.1 says, I exhort therefore that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. That's including the saved, that's including the lost. He's saying we need to pray for the lost. We need to pray for all men. It's important to pray for the lost because it's loving. 1 John 4.7 says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. It's important to pray for the lost because Jesus did. John 17, 20. Neither pray I for these alone, talking about the disciples, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. He was praying for people who didn't know him yet there. That's one of the other reasons why it's important to pray for lost people, because Jesus did, and he did that as an example for us. It's important to pray for the lost because there's power in prayer. I think a lot of us, we, we think this. Um, some of us know this. Whenever we're going through that hard time, that's when we learn the no side of that. We know that Christ is there. But sometimes when we're still in that valley, it's like, man, is he even hearing me? Is this actually working? Is there power in this? And there is power in prayer because the Bible says so. James 5.16 says, Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another, that ye may be healed the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That shows us that there is power in prayer. And when we pray for the lost, what should we pray for? You know, just for them to get saved? Like, is that it? Is that all the words that we should say? And we can. God hears those prayers too, and he knows our hearts on those. But there's some specific things that Scripture teaches that we can pray for when it comes to lost people. One of them is for God to open their eyes. Acts 26.18 says, To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. There's a distinction there. For power of Satan unto God, from darkness unto light, and for forgiveness of sins. All of those things come when their eyes 
are open. Pray for them to have open ears. We, we kind of touched on this just a few weeks ago in Matthew 11, verse 15. He hath ears to hear, let him hear. These are prayers that we can pray. We can pray scripture for our lost family members, our lost friends, lost people that we know. Instead of just only praying, Lord, I pray that they would get saved, sometimes they need to have open eyes and open ears in order to get saved. Pray for God to open their minds, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And the last one is, the kind of fourth one here, is to pray for God to give them a new spirit and a new heart. Ezekiel 36.26 says, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart of your flesh, and I will give, and I will give you a heart of flesh. He gives, a, he gives lost people a new heart. When you get saved, you get a new heart. You get a new spirit. And understand, and this, this may seem kind of contrary to most popular beliefs, but when we pray for loved ones who don't know Jesus, it's really tempting to ask God for protection on their life, for blessing on them, right? However, sometimes it's really the opposite that we need to pray. And that's hard, but some, that's just the truth. It's that we need to pray that the, the idols in their life would be broken, that the comfort, materialism, and addiction, that those false gods that keep people in bondage need to be broken. And sometimes, for some people, that includes driving them to a place with a lot of hurt and a lot of pain. But the most important thing, despite like that pain, that's not fun, but the most important thing about, for our loved ones is that they seek and find God. Sometimes, the most loving prayer that we can pray is that God would remove his protection and remove his comfort and drive people into a place where they can hear nobody but the voice of the Lord. And not only should we pray for the lost, but we should pray for our saved brothers and sisters in Christ. Galatians 6.2 says we ought to bear ye one another's burdens. We've only been in 242 for about three weeks now, but that's taking place. Christians are praying for other Christians. We're sharing burdens with one another. We're loving on each other. We're partaking in the fellowship that we were promised in Scripture. We see Jesus praying for the disciples here in, in Luke uh, chapter 22, verses 32, and then we'll jump to verse 40. But it says, But I have prayed for thee, he's talking to them, I've prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Verse 40 says, And when he was at this place, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ to be strengthened and that they would be kept from temptation. We look later at John chapter 17, which is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus, and I'm not going to go through the whole thing. I'm going to kind of jump down through, but we can see here Jesus prays a lot for the disciples and for brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 11 says, And now I, I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I have come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. May be one as we are. He's praying for them to have unity. He wants them to be together. He doesn't want them to fight, doesn't want them to have strife or separations amongst them. He wants them to be together. He wants the believers to be together because when he leaves, that's all we have is our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ on earth. We have him through the Holy Spirit, but on earth we have, all we have is each other. Verse 13. And now I come to thee that these things I speak to the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. He prays for the believers and the disciples to have joy in their life. Verse 15, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world. He's not saying, he doesn't want them to be removed. He doesn't want them to go hide in a corner because people need, people need the gospel. If everybody came into ministry, we wouldn't reach that many people. You guys reach the people in your workplaces, in your families, in your homes, because you're around them. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou, thou shouldest keep them from the evil. He prays for protection. So again, we see him praying for protection of, the, of believers. So again, we have unity, we have joy, we have protection. And then verse 17, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. We, we look at that verse a lot as in terms of like the Bible is true, and this is like scripture is true, and Christ is declaring this. But in the context of that talking, and that is true, all of those things are true. But in the context of that verse is being being said, he's praying for their sanctification. And we should pray that for our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Pray that they would grow. Pray that they wouldn't stay the same as they were the day that they got saved, but that they would get on the road to following Christ and that they would grow in knowledge and in understanding and application and in following him. If we want God to use us to impact our families, we have to start with prayer. We hear that a lot, and all of those verses that I laid out for you are reasons why. They show, they show us how. Christ spent a lot of time showing us how to pray, why it was important to pray, and things like that. And that is how we can first start to have an impact on our lost family members or on our saved family members in, in the terms of praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So ask yourself tonight, do I pray for the lost? Do I pray that they would have open eyes, open ears, an open mind, and a new heart? Do you pray for those things for your family members or for just those people that you know in, in, your, in your circles? Do I pray for my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, or do I, am I a hermit? Do I just not talk to anybody? Do I hide? Or do I actually pray for them and talk to them and ask other believers what they need prayer for? Do, I pray that they would ha- do you pray that they would have unity? Do you pray that they would have joy and protection and that they would be sanctified in the Lord? Those are things that he left us as an example to do, and we should be doing those. And this brings me to my second point tonight, and that's practice. In order to impact our families for Christ, we must live out our faith. We must practice our faith. Actions speak louder than words. Ask yourself, do I represent Christ in the circles that I am in? Can people tell by the way that I'm living that I am a follower of Christ? And I really think that it starts in Galatians chapter 5 with the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5 verse 22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, Verse 23 continues and says, Meekness, temperance, and against such there is no law. Do we embody these? Ask yourself, are you loving even to people who are hard to love? Do you walk with the joy of the Lord in your life even when things aren't going your way? Do we have the peace of God in our life even when we're really stressful? I'll tell you what, this morning I was stressed about this, so... (laughs) So I had to find that peace, had some good conversations with some people. Really, The Lord has really given me a lot of peace tonight about being able to preach and, and share the word with you. And that's, people see that in our lives. They see, is that person walking with peace or they just walk around and complain about absolutely everything going on in their life like they lived the worst life ever? Are you patient with others? Even when it's really hard, right? Uh, with your spouse or with your children, are you patient with them? Are you gentle and are you kind? even to those who aren't. The word goodness here comes with kind of the idea of generous. Are you generous? Do you help others when they need it? And understand that everybody reads this and like, oh, just give, give people money. Whoever needs money, I'll just give them money. That's not all that this is talking about. Sometimes people need your time more than your money. Sometimes they need an ear more than, more than your money. Faith. Are you faithful? Do you follow through on your commitments? Are you meek or, are you, or teachable? Do you have a humble spirit? Do you know it all or do you want to know it all? And the last one, temperance, that kind of means do you have self-control? Can you control yourself? Another place that we were taught how to live out our faith is in Ephesians chapter number four. If you would turn there with me because there's quite a bit here that I want to look at, kind of examine tonight. Ephesians chapter number 4, picking up in uh, verse number 22. says, That you put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the, deceit, to the deceitful lusts. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So understand that this is a three-step process. We must first put off the old man, remove, remove him. Renew our minds. We need to bow our minds, bow our hearts to Jesus and make him the author and the Lord of our lives. And then we need to put on the new man. Understand, we need to put on the new man, not just put the old man back on. We took him off for a reason. You need to put on the new man. We can't replace garbage with garbage. We need to put on the new man, and we need to put on Christ and Christ-likeness. That's where the word Christian comes from. So how do we apply this? How do we apply taking off the old man, renewing our minds and our hearts, and putting on the new man? Well, Jesus laid, or Paul lays it out for us in the rest of Ephesians here. 
we're going to look at five distinct areas of our life that are laid out in these scriptures on how to do this. Number one, verse 25. Wherefore, putting away lying, speaking every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Lying is to replace by truth-telling. Jesus spoke the truth, and we are to do the same. And something I spoke to the teens about with this a couple weeks ago, this isn't just always like if someone asks you a question and you blatantly lie to them, right? This includes gossip. This includes telling people a story that's not true. Just because you read it on Facebook or Instagram does not make it true. And as I told the kids, and if this offends you, I'm sorry, your parents aren't always telling you the truth. They may not know, right? It's not just lying when we know that we're lying. It's lying if we don't know that it's the truth. Well, I heard this. I don't know if it's true or not. Well, then you probably should just keep it to yourself. The benefits of sharing that really are not there. But lying is to be replaced by truth-telling. Verse 26, be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil, verse 27 says. We're not to be angry, we're not to get angry. When we get angry, we give place to the devil because we may say or do something that is more like him and less like Christ. We need to be able to control ourselves and have the self-control. I'm getting angry, okay, I need to remove myself from the situation. And typically the right answer is to go pray. Number three, verse 28. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Left, theft is supposed to be replaced by honest work. We are not to be deceitful in our work. We're not to cheat the system, cheat our boss out just because they make more than we do or whatever the reason is. We're called to have honest work. And these are, like, remember, the, what we're talking about here is these are reasons why, reasons how and shows us how to put off the old man and put on the new man, putting off theft, putting on honest work. Verse 29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of thy mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Foul language should be replaced by gracious speech, that it, so that it may edify and build other people up. This isn't just talking about language like cursing or using, you know, using bad language in that sense. But it's also talking about using your language to tear people down. I can tear someone down to the ground and not say a single cuss word. right? And that's, that's not good either. This also includes gossip in a way that we can tear people down. We need to use our mouths wisely. We should seek to build people up rather than tear them down, rather than critique them. Use, find a reason to love on someone and to encourage them. That's one of my favorite things about this church is a lot of you will come to me and you guys, for the most part, I hear good things and not bad things about myself when people come to me. And that's really encouraging or about the other staff or about the way we're doing things and this, that, and the other. It's really helpful. It's encouraging to us. Your comments help us because there's a lot of days in ministry and I've only been in it for a short time, but there's a lot of days where we get discouraged by the things that are going on or something that may have happened. So your words mean a lot, you know, good and bad. We should look to encourage people and not be critical of them. They're say nice things. The people have said nice things to me that I wouldn't have even, even thought to say. Number five here, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be ye kind one to another. That's like my favorite to use with the teams, um, teens. I'm like, be nice to each other. That's all I ask you to do is just be nice. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Resentment and wrath are to give way to kindness and forgiveness. Don't let bitterness build up. If you have a problem with someone, you need to go to them, because the more that that builds up, eventually it's going to explode, it's going to overflow, and that's a really hard place to come back from. Seek reconciliation with people who, need, who that needs to be sought out with. When we make these changes in our lives, those were five pretty drastic areas. And I think for most of us, we would say, oh yeah, you know, for the difference between being lost and being saved is in those things. Like my life radically was transformed in either one of those, many of those, or all of those ways. When that happens, when we put off the old man and put on the new man in that way and through those distinct areas, our families see that. You see it. You see it in other people. When lost people come to Christ, you see that in others. That is how we impact our families, by living out our faith and by practicing it. That is how our actions speak louder than our words. We can, we can claim to be all about Christ, but if we're not living it out, no one really cares what you say. 
And we've experienced that. We feel the same way about other people. Some of us, we don't want to admit that. We don't want to feel wrong. But that's honestly sometimes how we feel like, oh, they're not doing what, you know, what they say that they're doing. And it's important to not be judgmental or critical of that. But sometimes those people need to be, you need to go to them and explain those things and talk about it. And understand that it, in order to produce good fruit, we must stay close to the vine. John 15, 5 and 6 says, I am the vine, Jesus speaking. Ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. We cannot produce good fruits apart from Christ. When we get far from him, that's when our fruit starts to go bad. It starts to rot. We need to stay close to him in order to produce good fruit. And understand the purpose of producing good fruit. We produce good fruit to glorify God, not to glorify ourselves. We should not live out our faith in order to be seen by men, but to be seen by God. And Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount with things like praying and fasting and giving. He, he talks about that, not being seen by men. With that said, we cannot just use that as a reason to do whatever we want. Oh, it's okay. It's, in, it's right in God's eyes. We have to understand, too, that just because man is not our motive, it doesn't mean that they don't see our works. They still see them. They still see our fruit, and our fruits say a lot about our faith and if we're practicing it or not. Matthew seven sixteen says, Ye shall know them by their fruits. Titus 1, 16 says, They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. By our fruit, we can profess Christ and we can also deny him. And if you're faking your faith, your family knows it. Of all people, you can put on a face at church, you can put it on in the community, but at home, your family knows it. Pew Research did a, did a poll. They asked parents and kids, they asked a parent, how important is your faith to you? They would answer and then they would go to the kid and say, how important is your parents' faith to them? And they did it reverse. They asked the kid, how important is your faith to you? They went to the adults. He said, how important is your child's faith to themselves? And this was the results. 73% of teens gave the same answer as their parents. And then 68% of parents gave the same answer as their teen. Your family knows when you're, when you're actually into the word, when you're actually bought into Christ, and when you're not. And this, really bring, and this brings me to my third point tonight, which is Perseverance. Anything that is worth doing will cost you a little bit of something. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Notice what Paul says. He says, all that live godly. That's a very narrow declaration. He doesn't say all those who claim Christ, all those who are called Christians, all of those who are called disciples. We see that with Judas. It's those who actually live like him that will suffer persecution. Later in the same epistle, he says this to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Notice that he says he kept the faith. He didn't keep the law, he didn't keep tradition, he didn't just keep a faith as if there were many that could work, he said, I kept the faith. Because he knew that the only thing that was worth suffering for and being beaten for and being imprisoned for was the faith in Jesus Christ. Some of you know what it's like to be persecuted or ridiculed for your faith. We've experienced this, in some of us, in many areas of our life. But oftentimes that can come from family, and it can be the worst from family. A lot of the times, they will say whatever they think is right. They won't hold back on you. Someone in the world may be like, oh, I didn't want to be mean. Your family, I don't know about you, but mine, sometimes, they don't care. They'll say whatever they think, right? And because they know us better, they know where we mess up. They know where we fall short. And so sometimes their jabs, they hurt a little bit more than it would be if it was just from a stranger. We understand this. We face this kind of persecution. And Jesus, again, he says that this was going to come from families. Luke 21, 16, and ye shall be betrayed by both, by, or both by parents and brethren and kinfolks and friends. Some of us have experienced that. The second we came to Christ, our families, our friends... Yeah, they, they betrayed us, or that's how it feels. And some of you shall they cause to be put to death. That was kind of a cultural thing. I don't see that too much now. But, uh, and understand that some pastors and really Christians will say, oh, you live in America. You have no idea what it's like to be persecuted. And I disagree with that. 
The definition of persecution, of persecution in the sense that we're talking is hostility or ill will, Ill will towards someone. I think many of us have faced that. Someone's been mean to us, they've been hostile, they've been ill will towards us because of our faith in Christ. Understand that the main difference between America and other places in the world, we still we face persecution. I 100% think that we do. Just oftentimes we don't face execution like people in other countries do, right? So how do we respond to this persecution? Really, there's three, way, there are three keys and three ways to respond to this. The first one is with the truth. It's the most powerful thing we have. It's, sometimes it's the only thing that we have. It's important to remember that when we are persecuted, that they hated him first. They hated Jesus long before we even came around. John 15, 18. If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Nothing we face will ever be as harsh or unjust as what Jesus faced. Remembering that can help us and humble us when we're in those times where we're being persecuted or ridiculed. You know, he faced worse than I can. I can handle this. I can deal with this. The world hates real truth. People in power around the world like to make their own truth and they like to have their own control. They like to set the truth, and they like to control the narrative. That's why today the Bible is illegal, highly restricted, or dangerous to obtain in 52 countries around the world. If it had no power, that wouldn't be the case, but they know that it has power. According to the Open Doors watch list of 2023, over 5,000 Christians were murdered worldwide, over 2,000 churches were attacked worldwide, and over 4,500 Christians were detained. The news doesn't share those statistics. Understand that Jesus was our example to handle persecution. 1 Peter 2, 20 through 23 says, For what glory is it if, we, if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For ye even hereunto where ye are called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. When we make our own mistakes and we suffer for it, that's on us. That's not really on him. But when we suffer for our faith in him and because we believe in him, know that he is our example of how to handle that. He didn't complain. He didn't respond with a victim mentality of, oh, woe is me. He did not respond with harsh language. He was peaceable toward those who persecuted him. Verse 22 goes on to say, who did no sin, neither was guile or deceit found in his mouth. He didn't lie. He didn't mock. He didn't do any of that. Who was, when he reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself unto them that judge righteously. He didn't attack anyone. He didn't threaten anyone, and he could have. He was still God. He could have broke the chains and done whatever he wanted, but he didn't do that. He didn't threaten anybody. He was very peaceful in that. We see the same. We see it on the cross. Lord, for they know not what they do. We need to follow suit and do the same. These truths and those those things that are true, like Christ, the way that he responded, and the fact that he was treated harshly, harsher than we are, that should help us in those times when we're persecuted, even by family. Matthew 5, the second key to this is love. Matthew 5, 43, ye have heard that it hath been said that thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I said unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, and do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. We need to love them. People who persecute us need to be loved on. We shouldn't react with anger or resentment toward people. And that can be really difficult sometimes. But I think the key to remember is that people are persecuting you for your faith. They're mocking you for your faith. They're saying that your faith makes no sense. And sometimes it's not just you. It's your God. I've heard some vile things said about my God by people who don't know him. And that's the key. It's not about what they said. It's that they don't know him. And they need to be loved on and they need to be uh, shown the gospel. We need to look at those who persecute us, who are mean to us, and say bad things about our God as lost souls, because that's how he saw them. James 1.19 says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. We already looked at what anger does and how, the results that can come from that. But there's no better place to lose your testimony than in a harsh reaction. Sometimes it's not about our actions, it's about our reactions to people. Nothing good comes of being angry or harsh or raising your voice or screaming or yelling or cussing. None, nothing good comes of that conversation. Responding with love and with grace goes a lot further, and it gives us a, gives us a shot to share the gospel with people. 
The third key, the third way to respond to persecution is thankfulness. Matthew 5.10 says, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteous sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Persecution is truly a blessing. If we're persecuted, it's because we're living godly. Like 2 Timothy 3.12 said, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Luke, lukewarm Christians don't get persecuted. Only those that are truly in it for Christ do. I remember a couple, couple weeks ago, I had a high school kid come to me, and he, he was having some issues with boys at school, and they, were, they had said some things about God or him or the Bible. I don't exactly remember. And he was kind of down about it, and I'm like smiling ear to ear. I'm like, that's great, because that means you're a living testimony to those people. And back to 2 Timothy 3.12, if you're not being persecuted, what would that mean according to that verse? It would mean that you're not living godly. If you're not bucking heads with the devil, it's because you're walking the same way that he is. James 1, 2 through 4 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations or tests. Count it all joy. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work that ye may be perfect and entire and, entire and wanting nothing. When we are tested and our faith is tried, it proves our faith. If every time we face persecution and we gave into the world and gave it what it wants, we would be just like the stony soil we see in Matthew 13. That's what the Bible says. It says they rooted up quickly and then fell away because of tribulation and persecution. And understand this, and this is going to be a little sharp, but I think that that's okay. I don't get to get up here very often, so I need to at least get it in when I can. <laughs> understand that if you're more willing to make a sport... Uh, to make a stand for your sports team than for Christ, that's a problem. And understand that if you're more willing to make a stand for your political party than for Christ, that's a problem. Yeah. That problem is called idolatry. So this brings me to my last point tonight, which is prepare. If you want to have an opportunity to impact your family for Christ, you better be ready for it. As believers, we need to know why we believe what we believe. And we need to be able to explain it. And I'm not saying you have to go to Bible college and get a degree and know everything. But you should know enough to kind of navigate conversations. And if you don't know, say, you know, I'll look into that and I'll get back to you. You can come to me. I probably won't know as much as guys like Braden or Alex or Pastor. But you need to seek out those answers to truly have an impact on people. 2 Timothy 2.15 calls us to this. It says, study to show thyselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It's easy for us as Christians to, you know, get on a pulpit, get on a stage, go on social media, and blast out there that homosexuality is wrong. It is sinful. That is true. But it's really easy for us to blast it from here on social media or in a group of Christians where everybody's going to agree with us. What's a lot harder is to sit across from someone who identifies with that and have a conversation with them from Scripture why the way that they're living their life is, is wrong. We may believe it, but just saying, oh, Pastor Josh said so, that's not, that's not good enough. Those people don't really care about him or what he says. You need to be able to show them from the Scriptures why those things are wrong. And we need to be able to prepare ourselves for these tough conversations because we're having them. You're having them in your workplace or in your school or wherever, people come to me, they're like, oh, this or that, I don't know how to navigate this. Scripture can show you how. Homosexuality is wrong because Genesis 2.24 says, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. 1 Corinthians 6.9 says, know that ye not, ye not that the unrighteous shall call, or let me, know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators nor idolatries idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, that's talking about homosexuality there, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And if you show people that verse, read the whole verse. Don't just skip to the, to the part that you're looking for, because they might be in a lot more sin than just that one. Show people the full, the full text. Let them see, hey, this is what the Bible says. That's what it says. It says that they should not inherit the kingdom of God. That's not my opinion. That's not my pastor's opinion. That's what scripture says. Transgenderism. It's wrong because Genesis 127 says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he, he him. Male and female he created them. Romans 125, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator 
who is blessed forever. Amen. Things like abortion. It's wrong because Exodus 20.13 says, Thou shalt not kill. Psalms 139, 13, and 14 says, For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. We see other places in Scripture about this. We see Jeremiah and Paul both claim to be called into ministry, or Jeremiah called, in, called to be a prophet from the wombs of their mother. There's verses on that. I didn't put them in here for the sake of time. And then we see the unborn actually has life. We see John in the womb of his mother Elizabeth leaps when Mary enters the room when she is pregnant with Jesus in Luke 1. Those are the reasons that those things are wrong, and we need to be able to show people those. Other things that just might be helpful to know are why Islam or why Mormonism are wrong. Islam was founded by Muhammad, who received a series of revelations from God through an angel uh, the name, by the name of Gabriel. These revelations would be later recorded down as the book of the as the book Quran, the Quran. Mormonism, founded by Joseph Smith, after receiving revelation from God about churches being corrupted, uh, he would then be given the Book of Mormon by an angel. And when I see this, I'm like, why didn't God just be clear and say, like, why didn't he just put a verse in here that says Islam is wrong, Mormonism is wrong? That's the end of it. And then I read Galatians 1:8. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. He did right there. Paul says it. Or an angel from heaven. They claim to be spoken to by angels, and Paul hits on it. He's like, yeah, that, that's false. That's a false gospel. Stick to the main thing. That's what he's talking about there in the context of Galatians 1. And not only do we need to be ready to defend our faith against attack, but we need to be able and be ready to promote our faith. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We have hope inside of us, and we need to be able to share that with other people. That hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what is the gospel? The gospel means good news. It's the reality that man is sinful and at odds with God. But through Christ's atonement on the cross, we can have forgiveness for our sins and come back into a right relationship with God and spend forever with him in eternity. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, says this about the gospel and lays it out beautifully. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory that I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain." For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And understand that we have the opportunity and the ability to share the gospel with people now, and we need to take advantage of that. There's going to be a day where we can no longer share the gospel with people. We see this happen in Luke chapter number 16 with the rich man. The rich man passes away, and he goes to hell, and he makes two requests from there. The first is that he asks for mercy. He asks for Lazarus to bring a drip, uh, a drip of cold water to cool his tongue. And the truth is that he had the opportunity to, of, to obtain God's mercy when he was on earth. But the moment that he passed away, that opportunity went away. Right? And the second request that that man makes is he asks for someone to go back and tell his brothers about the reality of a place called hell. And we have that opportunity. We have the opportunity to go tell people about the gospel and about the reality of a place called hell. Hell is real and people are really going there. I think that often we don't like to think about that. That's a, that's a really harsh reality to grip sometimes. But ultimately, that is reality. That is what scripture teaches. And so understand tonight that we have the opportunity to share the gospel. While people are here and while we're here, we have the opportunity. When the Lord returns, that, that opportunity will go away. We need to take advantage of the, the time that he's given us to share the gospel. So as I close tonight, I want you to understand that I don't have all the answers, but Jesus does. He is our hope and he is our light. He has the power to transform your life, the life of your family, and it starts with prayer. Be faithful to pray for the loved ones uh, that are lost, for your loved ones that are lost. In a moment, we're going to have an invitation, and I encourage you, bring those names. 
Bring the people on your heart. Bring the people in your mind. Bring them to the altar. They need to be prayed for. And lift those names up to the Lord tonight. I encourage you to live out your faith. Let your light shine before men. Pray that God would sanctify you and bring you closer to him. Persevere. If you live godly, which I believe many of you do, you will face persecution. That's a promise from Scripture. Do not give up. Do not be discouraged. Get excited. Get on fire for God and be willing to make a stand for him even when things get hard. Lastly, prepare. Be ready for tough conversations. Prepare yourself. Study the word. Be ready for opportunities to share the gospel. People need it. We need to be ready for it. Sometimes we pray, oh, Lord, I just, I just pray that I would, I would be able to share the gospel with him, and then he gives us an opportunity, and we'd miss it because sometimes it's unprepared. Sometimes we're just not looking for it. Take, t- take time to understand the gospel and how to share it and how to grasp it and fully understand it in a way that you can explain it. And if you're in here tonight and you're saved and you say, I really just, I struggle sharing the gospel sometimes. I just don't know how to navigate this or share that. Our foundations class is great for that. Pastor Josh is teaching people every single week how to share the gospel. And, you know, sometimes he throws in some extra tips and tricks on how to navigate certain questions, certain people, and uh, certain conversations and stuff like that. We should be ready for someone to ask us about God, and we shouldn't shy away from those opportunities. We should be excited to have the opportunity to share the truth of Christ with your friends and family members. I remember, I didn't have this in here, but I remember the night that my father asked me to share the gospel with him. Boy, was I ready for that moment. We need to be ready for those moments, because sometimes that's exactly how it looks. Now, sometimes it's not, but sometimes people are going to come to you and say, hey, I'm, I'm broken. I've had enough of the sin. I've had enough of that life. I need the gospel. I need to know who Jesus is. We should be excited. We should be like, yes, I can show you. Yes. Yeah, we should be ready for those times. That should excite us. And I encourage you, if you can live your life in these ways for Christ, I hope and pray that one day you're able to lead your family to Christ in a very similar manner to the way that I, I was able to. If you would, please stand with me tonight.